This podcast is sponsored by Hover, the best way to buy and manage domain names. Please visit Hover.com and use promo code THEMOUNTAIN to get 10% off your first order. You have to pay the iron price. You have to pay the iron price. Watch it all come around as I lay on the ground. Joffrey, Cersei, Illin, Payne, and Hound. They all think I'm lost, but I know where I'm found. I'm the blood in the north when it all comes down. My word is my bond, and my bond is my word. Valar, Harris, all men must serve. See, as a raven flies, and time slips by. Valar, my rulers, all men must die. Welcome to the Game of Thrones podcast brought to you by BaldMove.com. We are, of course, the officially unofficial podcast for HBO's Game of Thrones television series. Tonight, we'll be covering episode 8 of season 4, The Mountain and the Viper. I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. What did you think? We talked about this a little bit on Instant Cast, but what the hell, we'll revisit it. <laughs> a lot of, lot of very depressed fans they're sheep without a shepherd they've been fleeced by george martin they're disillusioned i'll talk about that in a second let me first say what i thought because that's what you asked me yes uh it was not what i expected i expected to go roughly straight to the battle um and then get the other stuff afterward sure and that had me worried halfway through this thing i was like are they even going to Same show here. this battle are i thought i have to wait another week after a break uh-huh that that had me worried um so that kind of removed a little bit of my enjoyment the first time around the second time around though i liked it all the way through yeah you know what the second time it, i didn't notice a pacing issue at all because i wasn't worried right. i wasn't on edge thinking oh god they're not even going to show it this week right yeah I remember yeah. watching it because we watched it the, the the second time together, and like when we got to the King's Landing, I'm like shit, this is it. This this episode really was only 52 minutes long. Um, certainly not the longest episode, but mm-hmm. I felt like it was appropriately paced. Yeah, for sure. Um, d- do we want to wait to talk about like why this might have been disappointing for people, or my opinion on like is this disappointing for me? Till the end, or do we want to do that now? Because we kind of already brought the topic up. Meh, maybe wait to the end and talk about people. And we got a lot of feedback on it, too. People like, you know, is there any hope? Is there any point to keep watching this? Oh, my God. That kind of thing. Um, This episode was directed by Alex the Queen Raper Graves. (laughs) Okay. And David Benioff and J.B. Weiss. Uh, It got 7.2 million viewers, which is identical to the week before. Hmm. It'll be interesting to see if that plummets. The 250,000, 300,000 maybe people have the courage to see what happens next. We'll see. Uh, Intro featured another new location, Moat Kalen, which I'm okay. Moat Kalen rates a location, that little mud hut, (laughs) but we still can't get the eerie. What the? And we're getting more and more action there. That's like in Star Wars if they didn't show the Death Star, but they showed like a hut in Tatooine where the Jawas lived or something. Like, what the fuck? Come on. So, just to be clear, I'm in a Game of Thrones-inspired Star Wars introduction. Yes. Hypothetical one. Okay. Sure. sure. I can can get behind that. They show Yoda's (laughs) hut, but they don't... Well, Yoda's hut's pretty important. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty important. Hmm. Jawas not important. Trying to think what is an insignificant location in Star Wars. This is not the cast for that, though, Jim. No, it's not. Uh, Let's get on straight to the recap. We have a winch that's burping the only two fucking songs that anyone in Westeros (laughs) knows. The Reigns of Hope. 
uh, <laughs> The Reigns of Castamere, and The Bear to Maiden Fair. As a segue, mm-hmm. Jim and I were fucking around on Friday afternoon, and I mentioned that I'd been singing a all Hodor, Hodor version of The Reigns of Hodomir in the shower, and it might be funny to record that and make a video. And we did that, and you can get it to it on our YouTube channel. I'll go, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and link that in our show notes as well. Super easy, youtube.com slash baldmove. Ooh, even even better. Uh, it's exactly what it says on the tin. It's me <laughs> singing the Reigns of Hodomor with only the lyric of Hodor. Yeah. Reigns of Castamir. I, I can't get it out of my head. They blend together at this point. They do. I'm not even sure which is the original version anymore, <laughs> which is the authorized version. But anyway, it's Baird and Maiden Fair or Reigns of Castamere in this show. One of the weaknesses, they need a little bit, they need a few more ditties. Yeah. It's starting to get a little, it's making the world seem a little small. Yeah, we need some bards. We need some people with some harps and some flutes and lutes and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I'm not saying go full... <laughs> You know, Lord of the Rings shit, where every other page uh-huh. you got italicized seven-page epic poems and songs. But these guys, people surely got to know more than just two songs. Sure. Especially when you get across to Essos, it's going to be really ridiculous. Anyway, said winch, that's the burping singer, threatens our gal pal Gilly because her baby can't keep quiet during their uh, paid sexy times. And it's uh, putting the Johns off their business. I don't believe that to be true, but that's her... That's her statement. Uh, but then Gilly says, shut the fuck up, because I hear Al Hooten, and Al Hooten can mean only one thing, this part of the, this part of the North, an intimate, in, inti- in, imminent... Intimate attack. An, an intimate in- wild <laughs> attack. It's imminent, it's intimate, uh-huh. it's happening, uh, and holy shit does it ever. We can see why people don't like the wildings. Okay, yeah, they come in and they kill you. And it doesn't matter if you're a man, woman, or suckling babe... Unless, I guess, you're Gilly. Heart of gold. Yeah. Do you think that there's a little bit of mutual wildling respect there? Or just that's Egret not being a complete total? I read it as her not being a complete total. Complete total wild? I don't know what that complete total is. <laughs> I don't know where you're going to finish Murderous it, but... bastard slash bitch? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, her just not being a dick. I mean, she, you know, she sees the baby, and I think that's why she doesn't kill uh, Grimly or whatever her name is, Gilly. It makes me wonder what atrocities the Black Brothers may or may not have uh, visited upon the wildlings over the centuries. Mm-hmm. You know, when they're doing their attack parties, and you see the wildlings, it's not like they have dedicated military units. They're just living with their men, and the men, women, and children all together. I wonder if there's been some one-sided slaughters with some of the less savory elements of the uh, Night's Watch, which in, in recent years, let's be honest, is 95% of the Night's Watch is less savory elements. It's true, yeah. Uh, anyway, she gets spared. We see pretty horrifying waterfall of blood pouring through the floors as we uh-huh. dissolve the Castle Black, where the Black Brother B team, consisting of Grin, Pip, Ed, Sam, and John, meet independently and talk about the Moletown Massacre. I don't know why, because clearly no one's going to listen to them, or their plots are going to come to nothing. But... Unless John takes matters into his own hands, which I feel like he's edging toward. He's he scene after scene after scene with him he's being told oh who gives a fuck about the hundred thousand man army that's coming toward us uh and he's just getting more and more pissed off and eventually he's gonna snap and he's gonna i hope pull alistair thorne's head off with his spine still attached like <laughs> mortal I, Kombat style yes i i really hope so he needs it 
Mm, the old gods will implore, finish him, and that'll be that. <laughs> uh, Sam blames himself. Yes, yeah, he does. I mean, he took her out there. A friend of the show, Will, as dubbed Sam Gus Gus, uh, the fat mouse from Cinderella. Uh, and okay. ever since he did that, I can't see him any other way. Hmm. Uh, anyway, so Sam blames himself, but the other his other brothers are like, you know, Gilly's pretty tough. Not even a White Walker could kill her. Although, how tough can a White Walker really be? Sam killed one. Yeah. Let's yeah. be honest. Let's well, be honest here. You need a special kind of glass for it. <laughs> uh, I was just surprised to see that Sam has friends now. <laughs> like, that's... Oh, come on. Very different. He won them over in season one, mostly through John's help and intercession. But yeah. Still. Except for the guys who were antagonizing him the whole that's time. That's true. They're all dead now. Got killed at Craster's Keep. Yeah, yeah. John and, and Grin and all them uh, took them out last... A couple episodes ago. Uh, let's go across... The narrow sea to Marine up Slaver's Bay, where we see Grey Worm is bathing with his fellow Unsullied, and also I guess members of Danny's retinue are also bathing just up this bend, or maybe they feel comfortable bathing that close to a bunch of castrated men. Probably, but Satan's got it all hanging out. Yeah, and it looks good. Was, was and... anyone else nude in this scene? Because I I don't remember honestly. <laughs> I really don't remember. Sandy looks good, and Grey Worm looks like yeah. he is is interested in what the goods that are that are pro offered. Oh, Grey Worm's in this scene. Grey Worm is in the scene <laughs> with the Grey Worm lurking beneath the water. The the, oh, the ghostly worm, the Schrodinger's worm. We're not sure if the worm's there yet. Not. Uh, we won't know for sure until the loincloth is lit, raised, and that doesn't happen this mm-hmm. scene. Uh, we then see. Uh, Danny is braiding Miss Sandy's hair after she got done bathed, making her look real pretty. And they debate about the castration techniques of the masters because Danny's like, he's got no cock, he's got no balls. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no way he could be interested. And she's like, I'm pretty sure he was. Uh, next scene, Miss Sandy. Well, apo- whoa, before, whoa, we, whoa. before we move on, uh, Danny says something about her not being Dothraki. Like, Dothrakis would just let it all hang out. They don't give a shit. They fuck under the the eyes of everyone. Sure. There's a look on Miss Andy's face when she says that, like she's disappointed, like she wishes that she actually were one of the Dothraki, and mm. I don't, I don't know what that look is for. Hmm. I didn't, I didn't detect that. I just thought she was, she's got a lot of internal conflict going on here. Okay, As anyone, I agree with that. Yeah, uh, I, I will say that we can rule out the brother sister. The- no, maybe not. With, with Jamie and Cersei on the table, you can't <laughs> oh, quite. Jesus. They can't quite rule it out. <laughs> yeah. But I'll all but rule out the theory that they bro- they're brothers and sisters. This does seem to be something that's got sexual tension to it. Mm-hmm. Confusing to me, confusing to Danny. Confusing, confusing to, to Miss Sandy. I that's I think a lot of this is her just like, what the fuck am I feeling? And should I be feeling this? And if I am feeling this, where will it go? Yeah. No, absolutely. Uh I'm I'm very surprised to see what's turning into a romantic relationship here. So next scene, they're in the throne room. Uh, Miss Sandy and Grey Worm running each other. And Miss Sandy apologizes to say, "I'm sorry. Hey, I'm sorry you were cut." And Grey Worm's like, "Hey, don't sweat it. If I wasn't cut, I wouldn't be in a position where I could kill all the masters." And I like that. I like being uh, Danny Soldier. Mm-hmm. Grey Worm apologizes for perving on her, yep. and Miss Sandy said, "Hey, I'm glad you perved." And he said, "You know what? I lied. So am I." Yeah. Interesting dialogue. I have a registered. Nurse practitioner. 
that has dropped some science on us about castration. Would you care to hear her thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to preface this to say that I did an unhealthy amount of research on castration myself. <laughs> oh, God. It was just like one of those things where I thought I was going to get one answer, and mm-hmm. then I just fell down this rabbit hole of human sexuality and like shades of gray and historical accounts and a couple of guys that have, have are castrated in real life. And I was like, just, you know, all on the internet. So who the hell knows? But yeah, I don't think Julie is lying about either being a nurse or her uh, medical knowledge here. So let's say, uh, let's hear what she has to say. Uh, I was listening to your instant take where you're discussing what the Inceli have done down below. I am a nurse practitioner and have some thoughts on issue. First castration is removal of the testicles, not the penis. Like what we do to quote unquote fix our male animals. My dogs still have their penises, but no testicles. Well, maybe where you're from. We like to take the pillar and the stones in the Midwest. Uh, Most testosterone comes from the testes in males, but the adrenal gland also makes a small amount of androgenic hormones. So the unsullied can still develop muscle and have some masculine characteristics. The unsullied are probably missing just the testicles, but have a penis. If the penis is removed, we're going to set the record for penis. You said the word penis in this podcast. This is the penis podcast brought to you by Bald Move. It make it would make urination really difficult in the days before catheters, antibiotics, and or surgery. Imagine there'd be lots of infections. The opening might develop scar tissue, strictures, and even clothes. Dear God. Today, we have surgical methods to repair these, but I doubt wow. Westeros had these advanced surgical techniques. Yeah, good point. Um, so... In my independent research, I found that men who are castrated, uh, even those of the young boy, can still uh, achieve an erection, can still have orgasms, but they do lack most sexual desire. It's kind of one guy put it in one of these firsthand accounts. It's like kind of like people, you know, if, if you ever, th- you know, when if you get a massage, it's enjoyable. But you don't spend around most of your days thinking, man, man, I wish I had a massage. I really hanker to have it. It's been months since I had my last massage. It's not like a food or sex drive. It's kind of like mm-hmm. you don't think about it, but if it's happening to you, okay, whatever. All right. But there's other, you know, more extreme cases where they have a hard time getting erect without uh, boner pills, I think is the technical term. Okay. There's yeah. Also, um, you know, an open question about whether the unsullied have the penis still attached because I've got a definitive answer in the books, but I, I, and I wouldn't have considered that a spoiler last season, spoiler alert, but this season, I feel like I don't know that I want to talk about the book things because number one, the show could be like, fuck what the book said about the background of the unsullied. Sure. We're going to do a driver own boat or it could be a plot point. So I'm just going to remain silent on the subject. (laughs) I find it, Difficult to conceive of a scenario where Grey Worm's dick would be a plot point, but okay, all right. <laughs> I'm just saying that they have some sort of relationship. I, yeah, yeah. And what the nature of that relationship would be. Mm-hmm. I think that's another interesting point, too. Sure. Like, there are other reasons a man would want to be attracted to a woman other than just sticking your peen in the V, you know, the P in the V. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Uh,. Do you think any of that's the play? I don't know. Until we know what he's equipped with, I don't think we can we can call it. All right. Well, I am going to talk a little bit about this in the spoiler section for book readers okay. and adventurous and viewers. I think we've talked enough about uh, too much his his tackle. <laughs> Let's move on. 
Uh, Ramsey gives Reek a lesson on marine biology, talking about the Kraken mm-hmm. and get them out of water and they're floppy and flaccid. Uh, yeah. Damn it, I said we'd stop talking about Grey Worm. <laughs> uh, but uh, he wants him to go and basically infiltrate this Moat Kalen, which is a stronghold that basically protects the north from the south. There's the, the land called the Neck where everything is narrow and is very marshy and treacherous and boggy. And this castle kind of oversees the one safe passage through that. And it's a natural command. It's a natural choke point, And it's protected the north from th- for thousands of years. Unless you mm-hmm. have a dragon, you didn't really come north and fuck with the north. Uh, he goes in there and says, hey, I'm an ironborn just like you. Uh, my master, Roos, uh, uh, Lord Bolton, has treated me very well. And if you surrender to Garrison, which by the looks of it, you can't hold anyway, mm-hmm. you can go free and safe. Moat Kalen is a hellhole. Yeah, there's obviously some sort of plague going around killing everything, not people only, it's killing horses. It's, it just looks like a mass of disease and decay and yeah. sickness. So immediately when I see this and I see what I presume to be a healthy Theon slash Reek walking into this place, uh, I, I immediately get a bad feeling about Reek. I'm like, you're probably going to get something here. Sure. And then when he had blood spat in his face by a guy who's clearly infected with this plague, I'm very, very concerned for Reek's health at this point. Zombie Reek? Is it on the table? No, no, not zombie <laughs> Reek, but dead Reek. That's on the table. Right on. Um, Maybe spreading it to Ramsey and the Boltons in general. Who knows? When this commander starts really laying into Theon about, you know, what a weak person he is, uh, he starts muttering this that uh, I had to watch a couple times, but he starts muttering, Reek, Reek, rhymes with meek, Reek, Reek, rhymes with weak. Hmm. This is a this is basically fan service to the book readers because this is okay. a, part of an internal monologue that always runs through Reek's mind when we're seeing his POV chapters. That gotcha. he, anytime he has an impulse to do something, uh, you know, the, other than what his master wants him to do, that he's got this mental conditioning that basically reminds him with this sing song mnemonic device a mnemonic device that reminds him of his place. And they hid muttering that I think was a call out to, to us book readers. That's really cool. Uh, the garrison commander's betrayed. He gets an ax in the head and the guy says, yeah. does this paper mean that we can go free if we surrender? And he says, Reek says yes. And the very next we smash cut to this guy <laughs> flayed. On oh, a God. board. And it's the, it's, it's not even the most gruesome scene we see tonight. So, shockingly. Yeah. But it's pretty damn gruesome. It is, and I think it you know it serves the purpose to kind of disgust the viewers, which it worked, but it also serves the purpose of reinforcing Enrique again that it's always a trick with Ramsey, right? Right. Like he, everything Ramsey does is designed to trick somebody. Yep, and uh, Reek seems like he might be disturbed, or as disturbed as Reek's allowed to get about something, mm-hmm. but uh, he just wants to go home. And Ramsey says, "We are. We're going to our new home in enigmatically." Uh, we then cut to the Vale, uh, specifically the Eyrie, where Peter Baelish is under some sort of trial by the Lords of the Vale, uh, and they all they they they're tired to hear his bullshit and lies. They want to hear the testimony yeah. straight from the horse's mouth. Uh, they bring in Sansa, who's going by Elaine Stone, to still keeping the subterfuge of the niece and nephew, uh, and she says, uh, "I'm sorry, Peter. Sorry, Littlefinger. I got to tell the truth." 
spills the beans about her being Sansa Stark, confesses to everything, but fully backs his uh, Lady Liza committed suicide story. Mm-hmm. What did you make of this scene? Um, man, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little. I come away from the scene a little bit like Littlefinger. Why did you do what you did, Sansa? Hmm. Uh, I don't understand her motivations necessarily. I mean, you know, she says them later, like, imagine what they would have done to me if I were, you know, an accomplice of yours. I don't think that's her full motivation, though. I think there's something bigger going on with Sansa. She's had such a a minuscule role in the series so far. I think now she's going to start to kind of flower into her own a little bit. Yeah, and... um... It's interesting because from a it, it's getting interesting from a book reader perspective because mm-hmm. we're getting to a point in some of these characters' stories where we are in the middle, like with Sansa especially and some others, we're caught up. We're getting a, to the point where the books end, like okay. we're, they're bringing like book five type material here. So I don't know, and a lot, none, none of the other book readers know either exactly where this is going. Yeah. And they do seem to be. It's like you know they've all they've done this before where they deviated a little bit with motivations or character details, but then they bring it back to the target so the book reader can be like, oh, I see where they're going. Mm-hmm. I don't know where they're going, and mm-hmm. I don't know. I trust that they eventually will will get back to wherever Martin is steering Sansa. But I don't know where she's going. So the one thing that it's seems mysterious to me as well is what I'm trying to say. Okay, uh, the one thing that does seem clear to me is that there is a marked change in Sansa this episode. I mean, it, it's played out on screen you can see when she comes down the stairs in the black dress she looks very different both in physical appearance and demeanor so i think that's indicative of her change in attitude and this might be the first time she's actually had real agency since she betrayed her father Mm -hmm. every other choice has largely been made for her i mean she chose not to go with Littlefinger because she thought she had this sure thing with uh the uh, Martell, not the Martells, I'm sorry, uh, with Marjorie's brother, Loris mm-hmm. Tyrell. Um, so she's made a choice there, but this, she could have done anything. She could have confessed and betrayed Littlefinger. She could have backed Littlefinger's play, and just. but she kind of did this middle road where she claimed a little bit of her personal power and agency in her own name, at least with powerful people that matter, but she also, by and large, backed Baelish's play. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to make of that. I don't know how she feels about him. Um, I don't know that I would be too sure of myself if I was Littlefinger. That I just watched a yeah. person learn to tell devastatingly effective lies and manipulate people. And she's that's, on hey, my that's side. my trick. Yeah. Come on, and what are you doing? she's on my side. How good should people feel when they're on my side? I mean, yeah. Do yeah. you think he's got that blind point, or do you think that it's? I don't think that's... he's blind to it. I think he saw it in this episode. But he he wants it too. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit. There's a scene that more directly addresses that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I really liked how little Littlefinger wasn't getting much respect in this meeting. Um, I mean, people first. are just walking all over him trying to say anything. Sure. So I most people don't do that with Littlefinger. Littlefinger is usually the eloquent one telling everybody else how it's going to be. And they were shutting him down left, right, and center on all that stuff. Yeah. It's interesting, another little connection I imagine most people missed, um, unless you're a really close book reader, but this Jan Royce character, who was the balding guy in the imposing armor, Mm -hmm. is the father of Weimar Royce, who was the ranger 
in the very first scene of Game of Thrones, he was the uh, arrogant upstart ranger who led the Black Brothers into their first encounter against the White Walkers and lost his head as a result of it. But that's when Sansa said, uh, you met me when you were escorting your son to the wall to take the black. Yeah. That ties all that stuff together. Okay. So I thought it was a cool little detail. Um, Peter then, once he's gained their trust with Sansa's testimony, basically feeds the lords and lady what they exactly what they want to hear. You know, says, hey, I'm really against the Lannisters. I'm really for the Vale. I really want to support Robin. And hey, isn't it about time that he got stopped sucking teat? And started riding horses and swinging swords and visiting castles and maybe try to get his neck broke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, I that I think that's definitely his goal. There is to get Robin out of the picture. So he's one way or another, right? Yeah. Um, going real quick back to the other scene. There, there's a part where you know Sansa's confessing to who she is, and they say. Um, I, th- I think it's Baelish who says Lannisters have friends everywhere, even in the Vale, or mm-hmm. may- maybe it's Sansa herself. But then they say your secret is safe with us. I don't buy that. Okay. I I really don't buy that. I think there is a spy somewhere in the Vale who is going to report back to King's Landing. Mm. Either that, or I have another theory on how word might get back to them. What's but that? You're going you're gonna to keep we'll, us in suspense? We'll talk about it later, yeah. Hmm. Uh, another little uh, book slash show detail uh, for those that hadn't got it before is they explicitly mentioned uh, Ed Stark's relationship with the Vale here. The fact that he was fostered at the Erie along with Robert Baratheon, hmm. which is how they got to be best buddies and how uh, John Arryn and uh, them all got involved in Robert's Rebellion. So it's a lot of background details that it's cool for the book, for the book readers or the show watchers that have been really paying attention but again it's just kind of background stuff i think next week we might be back in the exact same room having this exact same conversation about robin am i to believe that both of them (laughs) stepped through the moon door in the same week (laughs) who rides a horse through the moon door i mean honestly baelish maybe we should board this thing up um so we see the we go back across the narrow sea to Essos to Marine. We see the unsullied mm. taking down the masters that were hung up, the 163 that were hung on the signposts. Uh, Sir Barristan is kind of overseeing the operation, and he gets a note from some slave boy that runs up. Apparently, it's a it's a kingly pardon uh, that has been brought to him, and he confronts Jor about it and be like, "What the fuck?" Uh, he's like, "Hey, I want to tell Danny, but I want to tell you as a man first. Danny is fucking pissed. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about this on the Instant Take podcast, but we also know that, you know, not everyone watches both or listens to both. So, a brief recap: Where do you stand on Danny's loyalty to Jorah versus Jorah's betrayal versus the reasons? You know, the pros and cons. I think the that her reaction was completely natural. Uh, it felt very honest and very justified. Uh, and I, if Jorah doesn't see that, I'm not sure why. Well, he doesn't protest it. He just begs forgiveness. Yes, he does. And I think, and the, I think he does understand that what he did sure. <laughs> was definitely wrong. And the problem, you know, cause I think that as viewers, we like Jorah and we know, you yeah. know, the sincerity of his devotion to the queen now, mm-hmm. 
But it's just so many things. The fact that it's really unforgivable. The very he approached her on a pretext, lied for a good long while, even when he knew she was pregnant with a child. That's something that's an anathema to a mother anyway. Mm-hmm. The fact that she was informing him on the usurper that killed her family. Yeah, it's just how for how does she know that this just isn't part of a longer con? Sure. Yeah, he's he's protesting his innocence, but what the hell? If you did this, maybe maybe you're actually leading me into an even bigger trap. Could be, yeah. Or I'm being manipulated to the for you know Westeros's benefit. Yeah, she's right to get him out of there. Certainly. Yeah, and it, it, again, it's like I said, I'm a Jorah fan. It's it's a shame, but I totally the second third time I watched it, you know, I had this kind of debate with myself reading the books, but I'm very firmly on Danny's side now. I don't see how you can take a traitor like that and forgive him for if yeah, nothing yeah. else it sets a horrible example to everybody <laughs> else all your other associates definitely also it makes jorah a bit of a wild card because by danny's side what can he really do he's just advising this other character who's got more important things right uh now he could go do anything he could go back to king's landing just like danny tells him to get his pardon maybe start spying for her mm. uh, who knows he could go anywhere at this point yeah, I wonder. That was my question. Where do you think he's going? What do you think he's doing? Do you? There's a couple possibilities on the play uh-huh. um, that I probably shouldn't mention. <laughs> okay, well, having not read any of the books, I can uh-huh. I can speculate all I want. I would like to see him, like I said, go back to King's Landing, get his pardon, hope that Tywin will honor that pardon. Right. Uh, That's a big if because Tywin, huge, yeah. I think, from the King's, the small council meeting we saw a few episodes ago, they kind of know that Jorah's gone off the reservation. Uh-huh. So. It's, speaking of Tywin, Tywin is not the fucking king. Tommen is. Sure. Where was Tommen at that battle? Like, we're talking about Tywin as if he's the king because we know he runs the show, but wouldn't Tommen really have the last say? Of what battle? At the the combat trial by combat at the end oh well i mean i didn't even see him there i don't even know if he is there i mean the king the the hand can speak with the authority of the king when the king's not around so maybe the king was busy playing with his kittens (laughs) maybe uh but but yeah maybe maybe jorah goes back to king's landing tries to honor that and then you know finds out some information that he has to then ride back to danny to tell her and now does she believe him Mm. like that's that would be maybe an interesting question so you think he's going to go about some sort of quest to earn his way back in you don't think i think so because the other way they could go is like an anti barristan like you know like a mirror oh, image yeah. he was dismissed from this queen's guard mm-hmm. is he going to be bitter um and you know try to strike back at her you know thin line between love and hate all that stuff yeah it's rough because i think if he actually does love her like he said then he would probably understand that she can't just forgive him for that and that he needs to find some other way to get back in her good graces. Interesting. Well, uh, let's move on to the next scene that's back across the narrow sea in Westeros again in the north, and everything about the scenery in this is amazing. Yeah, it is. And it probably cost a fortune to bring these people out to this thing with all the cameras and to do all the CGI of the massive Bolton army in the background, but it looked legit as hell. Sure. And it also... A key point here, that's just stock footage of Braveheart. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> they said to digitally remove <laughs> they, they a, anti-sim- a couple of anti-Semites <laughs> and some blue face paint. 
but they yeah. had that, you know, Adobe's and got everyone that had new, their tilt up. It was really weird. Uh, you know, uh, Adobe's got that new anti-Semite filter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's astounding. It's a, it's a quadruple anti-alias, anti-Semite <laughs> filter, and it makes it real easy. So it's yeah. economical. Uh, it looked amazing, and mm-hmm. also led a surprising amount of weight to this fucking scene, which I thought would feel very oily and disgusting, but I thought it came off majestic. Okay. Okay. The, so the, this, the, the, you know, that he's like, you know, look, look upon our, everything the light touches is our kingdom, Simba. Uh huh. And you know, the North is larger than all six kingdoms combined. And you're now my, I, by my decree, you're legitimate son. And you're heir to all this. And Ra is Lord Lam- Ramsey. Yeah. Uh, and I started to think, is this a herald of change for Ramsey? Ugh. Is he actually this going to, because Roos is talking about the North like he actually believes this shit. Like he, this yes, is, he's and... a Northman through and through, and maybe he's tired of seeing the Starks mumble and pussyfoot and get fucked over in the Game of Thrones and get overlooked, and he wants yeah. the North to get the respect it deserves. I agree with all of that. I think Roos is a fairly stand-up guy. The problem is that he just brought Ramsay into his family, and I don't think there is any changing Ramsay. I think he's he is just crazy enough to where he believes that whatever he does is right, and he will continue to do whatever he does, and what he does is pretty fucked up. So you think even if it meant losing his birthright or dishonoring his father's name, that he, he, he would not be able to defeat his own inner nature? The trouble is I don't think he views the stuff he does as dishonoring his father's name. I think Elaborate. Because when he was torturing Theon and his and Bruce came back and he said, Oh my god, what the fuck have you done? We needed him. Ramsey proved to him that he was wrong and that his torturous ways had actually worked and that they now had the peace they needed to take the north. Yeah, and he does have that. He had he has his own justification for everything he does. Like his relationship with Flaying. It's like this is the Bolton way. Yeah. Why would we forsake our traditions, you know? So I don't see him changing. If anything, I see him doing things to dishonor his family and not believing that they're dishonoring his family. All right. So the very last of this particularly impressive set of scenes, we see the Bolton army marching off to a distant castle. Mm -hmm. Many people said that that is... uh, I initially thought it was the dread for it because I wasn't paying that close attention uh, people on my Facebook feed were saying, what do you think, uh, how would, did Winterfell look? And I'm like, Winterfell? <laughs> and then on, on the second watch, I'm like, that is way bigger than what I imagined the Dreadfort and how the Dreadfort's portrayed. It does look mm-hmm. like Winterfell. Yeah, I think so. What do you make of that? They're going to Winterfell. They're going to a burned-out husk of a castle and a town. Right. Okay. <laughs> is that why Winterfell was kept in the credit sequence for... Or the intro the entire time? I don't know. I don't think you can defend that. I don't think so. It's still it's clearly not, not on fire. Yeah. But, you know, it's a castle, so probably the roofs are all gone. Doors are burnt out. Doors are burnt are down. Gates are smashed in. All the huts in the city are completely destroyed. But it still has, you know, it hasn't been slighted or anything, so it's still got all of its defensive, at, I don't know, are the are the Boltons actually moving in for good? It seems like it would make more sense to post up at the moat, right? I'm okay. Well, the moat's a shithole. I don't think. No, I mean that's basically open latrine. Yeah, that's with true. Some wood yeah, stakes around it. I guess cleaning that out might be dangerous. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know how strategic of a vantage point 
what well, the, they, they definitely need. Is. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. They definitely need to leave a garrison at Moat Kalen, but I think it's yeah. curious that they're going to Winterfell instead of like the Dreadfort. But I mean, Winterfell is right smack in the middle of the north. It commands the King's Road, yada yada. So hmm. okay, uh, let's move on. I have a scene with Sansa and Peter Baelish where uh, he comes in and she's sewing some uh, sexy new clothes, apparently. And she said, uh, he asked her if he knows what he wants, and she says, I know what you want, and uh, has a queer look up on her face. Is is now, do you have another theory? Is, the, is it time to deploy your other theory theory? You said you want to wait till the time no. is ripe. No, it's not. It's not even about Sansa. Am I on the wrong? No, it's okay. not even about Sansa. Sorry. It's about the Hound. Oh, let's move on then. <laughs> to Arya and the Hound, who also okay. have finally made their way to the Vale. They want to get through the bloody gates. Uh... Some interesting wordplay between here. You know, Arya says that killing is the only thing she can think of immediately that makes her happy, which is a sad commentary on her character if it didn't make her so badass. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've talked about this. Like, you know, uh, decide between pitying the fall of a little girl versus how cool it is to see a little girl <laughs> kick ass. I'm going to side with the rule of cool every time. I don't blame you. Uh, the Hound... Or she, she, he talks about the poison's a woman's weapon, and she scoffs and said, "That's why you'll never be a great killer. That I'd kill anybody with anything I get my hands on." Mm-hmm. Uh, seems like the hound is a bit bothered by his flea bite, as he calls it. He's tugging at his neck where that uh, yeah, that wound is. I'm ninety five percent certain that that's going to kill him. Okay, we'll talk about it here uh, in a minute. They the gatekeeper says, uh, you know, hey. You're here to see Lady Iron. Too bad she died. Arya cracks up. <laughs> uh, Maisie William and Sophie Turner too, as Sansa, just both did really good, great jobs. And I like how she cracks up, and then she like gathers up and looks up at the Hound <laughs> and sees like it was just funny for her personally. Uh-huh. Oh, I'm about to meet my family. They're murdered. Ha ha. And then oh, I forgot you were pinning your hopes on this too. Yeah, it's, it's tragic brilliant. hilarity. Uh, I I loved it. Um, just, yeah, yeah, I mean, tragic hilarity, that's all I can say. What was your hound theory? My hound theory is, okay, so... that's my next question is, now what? So I assume that they have to go inside. They've come all this way. Uh, I don't know why they would just turn around and go somewhere else. Um, so... uh, You have to assume that there are people who are still loyal to the Starks here, and this is, like, the only place you're going to find those people. On the other hand, uh, if his question is, "Well, who's in charge?" and they're like, "Lord Baelish is the <laughs> is the protector right yeah. now." I forget what the what the actual term is. Uh, but what I mean, what does that conjure up in the mind of the Hound? I don't know. It could be a scary thing for him. I mean, as far as he knows, the last, well, as far as everyone knows. Peter Baelish went to the Erie to marry to woo Lysa and bring her into the king's justice because they have been yeah. kind of Switzerlanding it, Switzerlanding it up and refusing to take part. Uh, uh-huh. Something that Peter actually threw in the faces of the lords and made him feel looks like they kind of felt guilty or bad about it. But what are you going to do? The sure. their ruler was was dead set on being an isolationist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think they got to go in? I don't know, man. I think that's a dangerous play for the Hound. It probably is. Um, I I don't know. I feel like it's up to uh, to Arya to see what she wants to do. Because mm. I, where else does the Hound has no 
reason to stick with Arya anymore, right? And does Arya have a reason to go to the Vale? Because the other thing that's complex is that they don't know that Elaine Stone, if they know anything about her at all, they certainly don't know she stands a Stark. Sure. Like, if you... If your theory is that there's going to be some spy that reports that back, they're certainly not going to report it to the fucking captain of the gate. No, of and he's not, not going to gossip it to the. They'll hound. go directly back to King's Landing, if anything. Right. Uh, I, I think. I mean, maybe it's just me hoping that they'll get Sansa and Arya back together because it seems like the thing to do now that they're so close to each other. Then again, it's Martin, so it seems like that may be the thing that everyone's expecting, so he won't do it. <laughs> Who knows? All right. Well, more to come, I'm sure. Um, Robin is whining about leaving the Eerie, doesn't want to do it, it's scary, et cetera, et cetera. Sansa then makes her de- debut as Elaine Stone. She's got her hair dyed. I think a lot of people miss this, but she's got her hair dyed brown. Oh, I missed that too, yeah. Uh, maybe it's the fact that she's in shadows. Maybe I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but I th- thought sure that she has dyed her hair brown finally, so she can be this character. She's got this, uh, vampy new outfit. If we put this together with her statement about knowing what Peter Baelish wants, it's kind of uncomfortable. <laughs> it's a little creepy, yeah. Um, where is this show taking us? Ugh. Uh, I don't know. How How much would it repulse you if they got together? <laughs> well, I mean, on a scale of I, like I don't think one she's to gonna smashed get... head. Um... <laughs> yeah, yeah. One, the sister fucking. Um, uh, I don't know how to answer that because I believe that Sansa is using Baelish. I do too, yeah. When um, I say get together, I don't mean she would be like falling in love with him or anything. Sure. I just mean, you know, they'll hook up because that's a thing she needs to do at the moment to trick him or to get some power here. I don't know. Sansa's 15. Mm-hmm. Sophie Turner, I believe, is 18. Mm-hmm. There's a little squeakiness there. But no more than certainly no more than uh, Lord Frey with his you know now slit wi- slit throat wife. Um, sure, I I don't know I I I don't know how swick that I'd be. Okay, it depends on how pervy it gets. Is it just going to be <laughs> yeah yeah open mouth kiss? Is there if God if they have a sex scene? I think that would be too much. <laughs> I can't picture a sex scene with little finger in anybody, honestly. <laughs> Especially since uh, Sophie is about a foot and a half taller than him at this point. Yeah yeah. And the conversation that would be happening during the sex. And the, the, it would be like... The Irish burr. Yes, now I am fucking you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like it? <laughs> and now in a surprising twist. Um, anyway, no, I can't go there. Uh, let's just stop. Let's stop. Let's back up. All let's right. let's leave this. Let's, let's wait and see how disgusting the show gets with this before we Good speculate uh, and reveal how disgusting we are. <laughs> Uh, let's go back down to King's Landing. Tyrion and Jamie have sp- apparently spent all night in his cell, drinking wine, reminiscing, talking about his chances. I really like uh, Peter Dinklage has done amazing work all season long, but there's so many great moments where he asked Jamie if he thinks that Oberyn has a chance, and Jamie's like, eh. and he's like, oh yeah. my god, I'm going, to- he's going to die, I'm going to die. I love that uh, their discussion about. Orson Lannister, mm-hmm. apparently a, a simple-minded lad who likes to kill beetles. Yeah, I was a little uncomfortable watching this scene with all the talk of morons and them making noises and uh, just something that's completely not acceptable in today's world. It's funny so many people... It's hard be- to watch so that stuff. 
it's funny that that's what people key on. Um, I agree. It's certainly uh, beyond. It's 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 not pull. It's beyond the pale for our company. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's funny when people say it's our like our first glimpse that that Lord ba- or that the Peter Dinklage isn't necessarily a standing upstanding righteous character. I'm no. like for real wrong for real. It like, says nothing about him. It's the time. It's well, no, the, not only the that, place, but like world. we've he. Uh, you know, he's been loyal to his family in a lot more compromising situations. That's true. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't, I don't know. I I thought it's just funny that people are so repulsed at that with everything else going on. But hey, whatever. Sure. I I key. You have to key your expectations and your reactions off of what other characters in that universe, sure. the way they react to these kind of things. And Jamie reacted as if this were funny, not as if this were offensive. And the thing is. I thought it was interesting that Jamie is content to just leave it there. Whereas Tyrion, yeah, yeah. honestly, it's like, okay, well, yes, that is, but why? Mm-hmm. And, like, why is he doing these things? And I need to understand. I've got this desire, this need to make sense out of chaos. Yeah. Do you have, I mean, I had a, a kind of joking interpretation that this was the Double D's take on George R. R. Martin as a writer. Sure. That, you know, we're as readers like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> what is your heart on for all these innocent people? And and George is still sitting in his writing room, thunk, thunk, and just, <laughs> there goes Rob Stark, there goes yeah. uh, Oberyn, there go you know, and we're just helpless to watch and we can't understand it. Mm-hmm. I do think, since this is an invented scene, I think there's a, a more than a little of that. I don't think for a minute that that, that is not accidental. But where do you think in, in the series canon... What is the reason that this story is being told? So I had a couple of interpretations here. I mean, the I think a fairly obvious one would be that Tyrion is kind of lamenting how easily his own life is going to be snuffed out, how randomly it happened. Um, it's it seems like you know he's killed, he's being killed, and for what? Mm-hmm. Just just jealousy for spite for just being who he is that that's silly he's a beetle and he's about to be snuffed out i think maybe if you want to go a little bit further you can look at it through Tyrion's eyes and say oh well tywin is the one really snuffing him out here and and tywin has snuffed out so many other people and the lannisters themselves are the gods in question um or or uh, is the the orson in this scenario just snuffing out beetles and for what Right. It's just slaughter without reason, and and everything they've done is insignificant. Right. Um, we had a take I thought was pretty smart from a listener, Paul H. Um, go ahead and insert that now. He said, I think it's the showrunners or author making a comment on existential threats. Game of Thrones is a show where there is political intrigue, shifty characters, and shocking consequences based on people's actions, and watching us gives us pleasure and like Tyrion, we enjoy and are good at playing the Game of Thrones because we as readers or watchers of the show love to say, oh, if he, if I were he or she at this time, this is how I would react instead of what they did, etc. But this is sort of missing the trees for the forest. There are two existential threats in the show. They're always being teased upon, the White Walkers, ice, and the dragons, fire. The characters in us are so involved in Game of Thrones that we weaken our defenses of these existential threats. This necessarily allows something like the White Walkers to emerge and perhaps overcome the North. As we've seen so far in Season 4, the dragons are out of Danny's control as she's mostly focused her attention on being a ruler. And I think that the people in King's Landing, due to the deaths of Joffrey and Oberyn, combined with the new boy king of Tommen, are so fractured they cannot unite against 
an existential threat like dragons either. The beetle monologue, therefore, is a metaphor for where we are Tyrion watching his cousin contend with beetles, uh, which is part of the Game of Thrones. Like Tyrion, we are fascinated, frustrated, consumed about the why of all of this, and we should be the attention, paying attention to the other, more important things. After all, Tyrion's cousin Orson should have paid more attention to avoiding mules than smashing beetles. Oh, that's a pretty smart take, too. It's not bad. It's I don't meta know commentary that... on us as the readers, and as, as yeah. and and also on Tyrion as well. I don't know that the question of why is completely irrelevant, though. Uh, I I don't think that's a bad thing to focus on. I think Littlefinger has certainly gotten uh, a leg up on just about everyone asking certainly. the question why. Uh, why can be exploited? What can't necessarily be exploited? How can't necessarily be exploited? Right. So, I don't know. Uh, once again, got to call out the set, the King's Landing Arena as Tyrion's led out, and we see this kind of whooping, swooping crane shot where it goes over, and we see kind of straight up the cliffs looking at the Red Keep. I thought it was just beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Tyrion's dismayed to find that Oberyn is wearing very light armor and no helmet. And drinking wine. And drinking wine, <laughs> guzzling wine. He just said wine always helps. <laughs> well, if that's true, then Trial by Combat is the set of everything that it would help i would argue that wine has gotten Tyrion halfway to where he is now (laughs) so let it be uh this is all pretty much straight out of the book the lines the even the way the action is shot um it's exactly how i imagined it and it was awesome and terrible and that oberon was every bit the badass we thought pretty much dusting off the mountain without breaking a sweat he didn't get hit at all he he did a face plant onto the concrete once but that's about it and then and and then i almost think that that was intentional because he <laughs> like kind of jumped into it and uh-huh. then he waited till the mountain kind of committed to this overarching assault and he just like pivoted his hips and his legs and he was up and that's when he got his first real like yeah. a weak point of the armor attacked and he slipped his blade underneath there and then he pivoted out of that and cut i guess it looked like he cut his uh it's calf muscle. Yeah, it's a, what do you call that? The Achilles tendon. So he's he's yeah ha- maybe not hamstrung. It's whatever the Achilles Achilles strung him, <laughs> uh, and looks like he's about got him. But you can tell he's just consumed with winning the trial by combat means very little to him. Oh yeah, it's all about getting this confession. He wants to hear it, and not just that. He wants to to get the mountain to condemn or implicate Tywin as well. Sure. And that is his undoing. Uh, uh, while, while he's grandstanding and uh, thinking that the mountain's no longer a threat, all like like Bron said, one wrong move and he gets your hands on him. Really gruesome. Uh, the guy yeah. lost lost his chicklets. Chicklets hit the ground. Mm-hmm. Eyes go, fingers go into eye sockets. Screams are had and skulls are busted. Holy shit ruined him i mean just completely devastated mountain falls over you know he's apparently in bad shape too tywin calls the combat in favor of the mountain and thus Tyrion is sentenced to die fade to black okay wow um there's a lot of stuff here um and you and i you were thinking that he was going to win the whole time when did you start to suspect that maybe he wouldn't Right up the part where he got his legs swept out from underneath him? Just, like, slightly before that. I'm like, man, he's walking around this guy a long time. The mountain's not saying anything. Why would the mountain say anything? And then it happened. And I was like, oh, of course. Of course. 
Uh, although, even at that point, I still thought, okay, well, he got swept. He's probably going to roll out of the way or something. But then it looks like the mountain like swept him onto his hand and then yeah, grabbed him gave... by the neck and pulled him up and punched once him. He had, once he had his hand on yeah, it, it was game over. over. Uh, I knew that. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't expecting it all the way up to the point where it happened. So, well done. Yeah, and yeah, well, I, I feel like the book readers did a much better job of playing this than the, you know, Red Wedding, because that was sure. widely spoiled for a lot of different people. It was. Um, people just being dicks. And I was really nervous, because arguably this is a bigger gut punch, because it was, I thought, pretty well telegraphed that Rob was going to die. Mm-hmm. This was super shocking, especially dealing with, you know, kind of the the Rob fatigue. Reading the books, I was just like, fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> what is there good why is there anything good for me to root for now is this just going to be a bunch of bullshit where the bad guys win is this empire strikes back without return of the jedi what the hell yeah so this was more of a gut punch for me because unlike rob stark who i you know i kind of liked his character i saw potential in his character this is really the undoing of Tyrion. i mean this is Tyrion's death as much as it is Oberyn's, uh, as far as we're led to believe at the end of this episode. Um, so Tyrion's a character who I am much, I am, I am rooting for, despite his family name. Um, I am much more invested in than Rob Stark. So when this happened, this was much more devastating. Yeah, and, and I liked Rob Stark, especially when I was reading the books. and Because I, I read the books before I watched the series, well, technically, I read, watched the series, then watched the first season, read the books up till this mm-hmm. point. And I finished the book, and then I stopped for a long time <laughs> because I was pissed. Um, and it's just hard to get in the feast after doing doing all this. But, you know, Rob Stark is one thing. I liked him as an instrument of potential justice. He was an avenging angel to right the wrongs yeah. that I perceive happened to the Stark, all that stuff. But as a character... Especially in the books, he's just kind of a sketch. Okay. Oberon was a... I liked him just a lot more as a character, and I think in this series, they even made him better than in the books. Mm-hmm. Like, everything in the books came clear, and Pedro did just a phenomenal job of translating that and bringing that swago, that bravado, that even, like, when he was kicking the mountain's ass, he was showboating the whole time, smiling yeah. to and doing these, like, big, swooping Darth Maul, Ray Park moves. Yeah. Um, he's just a lot of fun to watch. And then to have the, you know, him beaten down and killed. And also, like you said, chain reaction. Now Tyrion's fucked. Mm-hmm. Just, it's too, it's, it's a lot. And I, that reflects on a lot of the feedback we got. People just like, <laughs> the fuck? Why are we watching this? Is this just some... I don't know. See, I don't buy that. Masochistic thing that we've signed up for? I mean, okay, I get where maybe you're disappointed in that a character you liked is dead, but... I fully expect there will be more characters I like, and just as much. I fully, I I don't think that this ruins my enjoyment of the story in any way. I think the story may just even be better for it. Uh, in the end, I I don't see that this ruins my experience with Game of Thrones, like some people are saying it does. I will point out that you are unusually de- detached from the entertainment in that way. Like you don't. It's it's rare that you really like fall in love with characters or feel exceptional loss 
to if stuff the pretend stuff i mean i think if Tyrion actually dies that's when i'll be like oh my god i don't know if i can continue to watch this okay just because he's one of the few characters that i really really have a connection with at this point that's mildly interesting um but still i i don't know i mean knowing you as long as i do i don't know that you it would you would just rage quit watching i probably wouldn't no because the story itself is still so good True. I mean, you've got to look at the world. Do are you attached to this world? Do you think that well, this is am. a trick? This is a, a pony trick that he's playing a little bit too often. Ah, you like this character? You think something good's gonna happen? Dead. You like yeah. this character? You think some justice's gonna dead? Dead. And his mother's dead. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I killed their father. Now I got and the mother collateral, and now I'm I'm coming for Tyrion too. It's like yeah, a little little Orson, little thunk thunk there. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, before we pay the bills, uh, I've had some requests to do a new weekly feature, uh, Kill of the Week, something we've uh, you started doing on The Walking Dead, and uh, some of our Walking Dead fans think that this is another show that could benefit from that. Okay. Uh, no surprise this week, Orson Lannister, thousands of Beatles mashed to paste. Yeah. Uh, it's it's <laughs> spine-tingling and horrifying. Of course, that's bullshit. It's the mountain. Yes, obviously. It's there's a lot of choice kills in this episode, but my god, smashing! I've heard that talked about a lot. I think the first time I was exposed to the idea of a man having his head crushed is in Blade Runner. Hmm. Um, but I've never actually seen it on camera before. Terminator. That's the only thing I think. Terminator Two. But did they actually show it on screen? I don't. A man's like head they... wasn't crushed. It was a Terminator's head that was crushed. Oh, well, yeah, of course. But who gives a shit? It's a robot. My God, you can kill yeah. robots left, right, and center. Sure. And uh, nobody gives a shit. Um, I think that's interesting. Like the Transformers movie, their their people are getting dismembered brutally, and these are conscient sentient beings. But it's okay, and it can be PG. Because they're, not... they're robots. Yeah. Same thing with the X-Men movie. Now, I don't think it's a spoiler to say a, lot, a shitload of people die. If you're a metal mutant, apparently you can have your head ripped off and thrown at the camera. Hmm. Because there's no blood. Yeah. The fuck is wrong with I us? Know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'm running a, a Game of Thrones podcast where I talk about uh, how creepy it would be if Sansa Stark fucked Peter <laughs> Baelish. Maybe I have no room to talk. Uh, now's a good time as any to pay the bills, though. Uh, do right by our sponsors. Uh, let's <laughs> jump into that right now. We've been telling people about how great Hover is for weeks now and how easy they make finding and registering a great domain name. But Aaron, I don't need a domain name. Don't you? Do you use email? Yeah. Well, then you need a domain name. Take Peter Bayless, for example. He's had catlover69 at hotmail.com for years now, but frankly, it's gotten embarrassing. But if he switches to too hot for Sansa at Gmail, what happens if he needs to switch again in the future? He's got to send another one of those embarrassing, hey, everyone, I got a new email messages that everyone ignores anyway. But if he goes to Hover.com, he can get something classy like Lord Baelish at the Eerie.net. <laughs> and what's great is he doesn't have to stop using Hotmail or Gmail or any other email client of his choice. He can just forward all of his Lord Baelish stuff to CatLover69 and no one will be the wiser. And best of all, he gets all that starting at $5 per year. Get over to Hover.com and use our exclusive Bald Move promo code, The Mountain to receive 10% off your first order. That's The Mountain, no space. What are you waiting for? You know, we've been up to a lot of stuff over in the past few weeks at BaldMove.com. Did you know we have complete coverage of Fargo on FX? Did you know we're doing a 24 Live Another Day podcast? Did you know starting next week, I'll be covering the new season of Orange is the New Black with a rotating cast of all-star lady podcasters, including 
Amy and Susan from The Because Show, and Kelly from Up Yours Downstairs. Well, now you do. Head over to baldmove.com and check out all the great content we pump out like so much blood from a ruined prince's head. And if you like us, even a little bit, consider how you can support Bald Move. You can go to subbable.com slash baldmove. That's S-U-B-B-A-B-L-E dot com slash baldmove. It's a voluntary subscription site. You can pay us a little. You can pay us a lot. You can pay us on a recurring basis. And best of all, every dollar you spend, you can save up for cool perks. In fact, Joel cashed in all his chips last week, commissioned a a custom podcast, wanted us to watch a few episodes of Metalocalypse. We did it. We reviewed it. A good time was had by all. You can check that out on baldmove.com. And check out Subbable, always Amazon.baldmove.com. If you're using Amazon, please use it. If you're not, you're just giving free money, free money to Jeff Bezos. You could be sending to us. And if you can't do any of that, you don't want to do any of that, rate and review us on iTunes. We always appreciate it. Oh, I know I said probably final at least three times. At least I felt like I did. Uh, We got one other thing kind of excited about. I drew up a little parody of the Aria and Hound Roadshow. We talked about this in, I think, the second episode. Los Pollos Morgulis. It's a mashup of the Los Pollos Hermanos concept from Breaking Bad with the Hound and Aria. You can check it out on our merch store. Go to baldmove.com and click on the link, the merch link, and it'll take you there. Okay, I think we've done that justice, and let's move on to feedback. Okay, Sam from Brooklyn says, Why did Oberon die? Oberon is literally nearly there. He had the mountain on his back. He's about to get justice. Why did Oberon get killed instead? And the answer is, no reason. It's just life in the world of the Game of Thrones. In Game of Thrones, fate is like the simple cousin with a rock. No care understanding for justice or what's right and wrong, and the characters are the Beatles. Every once in a while, a bad beetle gets crushed, but nice the book. The beetle is a beetle, and unfortunately, a lot of beetles we like end up on the wrong side of that rock. And it seemingly will not stop until Martin gets kicked by a mule. You shut your whore mouth, Sam. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine what would happen if I woke up tomorrow and George R. R. Martin had died with two, maybe three books left in the series to complete. It I know be... exactly what would happen. Brandon Sanderson would take over and he'd write the last two books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I said, it would be an unimaginable nightmare. <laughs> um Moving on to Alex H. says, I'm clearly not a book reader, but I am devastated by this episode. I don't think it was out of the realm of possibility, but it seems like the story has hit the reset button on its perceived heroes one too many times. As a viewer, it's hard to stay engaged when we constantly lose our hope. Aaron, as a person who's read the books, I know you have a hard time finishing after all this mess. Is there any hope left? Should I carry on or spoil myself because my balls just can't take any more abuse from this show? How do I answer that question, Jim? I tell him to quit watching. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I will say I don't think if I was doing this podcast on this show that I would have continued reading the books. I think I would have probably been like, fuck it, I'm just gonna watch the show and if it turns out well, yeah, I'll yeah. go back and read the books because it is brutal. Okay. Having said that, uh I did get you know, I finished Dance of Dragons and I have a greater appreciation for the story of a whole. I can't say whether it gets better but or worse, but the story is compelling, just like Jim said, and that's all I can say. So uh, your ball's still going to be bruised and battered, but it's it's going to be interesting enough that I don't think anyone, everyone that's saying that they're off and they're done, I, I don't think they're going to last more than a season. Like they're, C- they're, cut, cut them off. No balls, no punishment. <laughs> uh, the pillar and the stones, Jim? No, nah, just the stones. Just the stones. Leave the pillar. Yep. 
Uh, Nikki P says, like anyone who's seen The Princess Bride, excluding Jim, and to my dismay, my Game of Thrones discussion buddy, I was definitely reminded of it during Oberon's last stand. It seemed like a clear reference to Inigo Montoya's revenge speech for the six-fingered man. So I looked to see which came first, and I've read that not only is it one of GR germs. I got I'm, okay. From here on out, I'm not saying GRRM. I'm saying germ. All right, because okay. I just can't say it. It's hard. Germ's favorite fantasy movies, but he thankfully acknowledges the movie's influence on the battle between Oberon and the Mountain. I don't think the family revenge speechifying worked nearly as well here. I may just be salty, mad, dismayed, and disgusted, but I feel that Germ stretched my suspension disbelief like a fruit roll-up when he had Oberon drinking before this fight uh, and saying that he's that he's been waiting on for years, smiling at the audience like a jerk rather than watching his opponent and trying to get a confession for something he knows the guy did. For one, the size and personality of the mountain should indicate to someone as brilliant as Oberon that he would need to inflict more physical harm over a longer period of time to get a confession. Second, if Braun knows better than to get within an arm's reach of the mountain, someone as brilliant and skilled as Oberon should know the same. It was just a little, trying a little too hard to pervert the sub, and subvert the storyline from Princess Bride, and I found that writing disappointing. You don't know anything about the Princess Bride, but do you... <laughs> that, that is a statement is entirely untrue. I know most of the stuff about the Princess Bride. I've just never seen it. Okay. I have friends who incessantly quote it. Uh, okay. Um... <laughs> Having said that, what do you think of the crux of her arguments that that this is a almost betrayal of Oberyn's character? I kind of buy that. Okay, um, he does seem like an intelligent guy. I think maybe his uh, his pride and his desire to you know implicate Tywin in this maybe just got the best of him during the heat of battle. I also think people just are not getting how confident he was in victory. This wasn't a suicide mission. Mm, yeah. He thought he had the mountain cracked, totally unimpressed with him as a fighter, and thought he had the formula, and was justified. Like like Jamie said, well, he believes in himself, and Tyrion's like, boy, howdy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But that's his fatal flaw. Yeah. He, un, why, why, it went so well in his favor that he started showboating. Well, continue. I think he he's going to showboat because that's who Oberyn is. That's yeah. That, that part of him is not showboating would be a, a kind of a betrayal of his character. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, yes. It. He started monologuing. Uh, that's that's a fatal flaw in heroes and villains alike. But <laughs> it is one that they a lot of times share. And and again. His mission that he was sent out to complete was very different from the one that Tyrion wanted him to do. Yeah, very different. So, I mean, I don't know what to say if you thought it was... I thought it was awesome, but I can see the validity of all the points you say, but I just don't... I just think I just he let himself down. I, I, maybe betrayal of character is not the right word. I think he let himself down in that he got distracted. He wasn't thinking because he was so focused on this other thing. But do you think... I mean, if he had just gone ahead and killed the mountain there, I think he would have felt like it was a, fa- it was a failure. Yeah, yeah. So he had no kind of in that, looking at it that way, he had no real choice but to try something like what he ended up doing, which is okay. Well, I, I can't let you die now. I need, I need you to confess. Yeah, yeah. You're you're right about that. He might be betting on the fact that maybe the mountain's never been hurt before. I mean, he's so big and so powerful that. No one, and he's got so he can wear so heavy of, a, of of armor, and he's got such a big sword that no one's really hurt him seriously 
and maybe he has this mortal fear of pain and death like everyone else, maybe even more so since he's never had to confront it. Hmm. I don't know. Depends on how psychological you want to get with it. Sure. And from California says, Tyrion says the outcome of the two people hacking each other to death is the God's judgment. So what sort of God does that make them? Such senseless violence has no clear or just end. Death for no reason. Death for death's sakes. The gods are as inscrutable as the inner workings of a moron, and Tyrion will never know why the boy smashed the Beatles any more than he will understand the gods. And with the scene ending with the sounding of morning gongs, gong, 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 nicely mirroring the smash, smash, smash of the rock, the Beatles' death is nicely paralleled with Tyrion's coming fate. I thought that was a pretty good take. Sure. Very uh, rich in symbolism. Any comment, or should we go on to Katie and Philly? Move on. Perhaps the Beatles-smashing simple-minded Lannister cousin is essentially standing for Tyrion's new god. Two seasons ago, all Tyrion wanted was a god of tits and wine. Now that so much has gone wrong, he sees a Beatles-smashing moron as a more suitable deity for this world. Switching allegiance to the Beatles-smashing god? Uh, no, I think he was questioning the Beatles-smashing god's motives. Mm. Like, what? what's the point, Beatles-smashing god? <laughs> Why? Uh... If you're all-powerful and all-loving, why are you smashing these beetles? <laughs> Jasmine G says, Why do I get the distinct feeling that the neck wound is going to end up killing the hound in one mm-hmm. way or another? Last episode, they gave him this long-touching scene about it, and it's still a problem now. Chekhov's neck wound? I, I'm of that opinion, yeah. She's picking up what you're laying down, Jim. Sure. Kevin from Canada says, This is the episode where you see tra- Sansa transform from pawn to player. Yeah. She played the Vale Lords and Lady like a fiddle. In her confession itself, we see how she's been used left and right her whole life, and at the same time, she becomes a player. I think her final scene coming down the steps looking damn fine was definitely a ploy to the man she's going to play next, Littlefinger. As for Arya, her hysterical laugh gave me some pause. At first, I thought she was just laughing about the Hound uh, and how he wouldn't get his money, and they came all that way for nothing. However, after some thinking, I think it was more. She was, again, so close to her family member, and again, they die. That's tragically sad and very interesting to see what this does to her. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly the entire email. Like I said, our take, or my take anyway, was that it's both. Um, it was both, and, and I think the way she played that was very brilliant and that you can see both of them happening, that like, oh, God, yeah. me and my family, ha-ha, we're always dying, and then, <laughs> oh, yeah, you wanted to get paid. Bwa-ha-ha, that's even funnier. Yep. Um. Christine M. says, I was on the fence about her uh, Sansa's maleficent cosplay and ultra swagger on the stairs. At first, I thought it was too abrupt, but as I reflect on it, it does make sense. When we saw Liza fly, she had to realize pretty quickly that she could become a hostage at someone's court yet again, or she could start manipulating people. Once she made the decision, she gave it her all, probably took her cue from Marjorie for both fashion and approach. She decided to use her sexuality and what knowledge and power she has to her best advantage, Truth and morality be damned. She was suing her new pa- sewing, rather, sewing her new power costume as she talked to Peter about her thought process that she knows what he wants, so she threw in with him. I have to admit, Littlefinger's evident terror boner as new Sansa made her entrance was very entertaining. <laughs> terror boner. He knows she was uh, has him by the short hairs, but this new aspect of her personality is making her even more attracted to him. Jim, do you agree with that assessment? That's a really interesting take. Is is this going to the point where they're going to team up and be the ultimate uh, lie-telling duo? Or 
is it the fact that he's kind of like um, a rich man that likes to eat uh, pufferfish? Okay. You know, part of fact it's that bad you, for him. It's part potentially of, deadly. It's but... part of fact that it's potentially deadly is one of the things that makes the you know the flavor really pop. Because I can't imagine pufferfish tastes Maybe. good enough to risk death. Mm, Very yeah. few foods taste good enough to risk death. That's true. Love tiramisu cake. But I've had like a <laughs> one in a hundred chance of dying every time I ate it. I fucking wouldn't have it on the menu, okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pete might be that kind of guy. Maybe. Uh, your namesake, Jim H., said, I feel that this episode was a betrayal of Lord Baelish's character. Hmm. He's always seen as the master manipulator, five steps ahead of everyone. Now his life hinges on the unlikely hope that Sansa will lie for him and supplant the story. The Baelish I have come to know would never have allowed himself to be put into such a precarious situation. Either he pushed Liza to her death without fully anticipating the consequences of his actions, or his expectation was that Sansa would support his story, which is a bit of a Hail Mary. Perhaps there was a plan B or bigger picture that I'm not privy to, but he seemed uncharacteristically short-sighted. What do you think, Jim? I don't know if we talked about this in the previous episode's podcast, um, but I think what had happened with Sansa and the way he feels about Sansa clouded his judgment at the moment where... He saw her threatened by Rob or by uh, Liza. That's my take. Okay, in the, in so the we must we must have talked about that because mm. uh, I, I I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, we, it, I, it isn't in Peter Baelish's character. He had that not been Sansa, he probably would have taken Liza up and said, "There's only one person I've ever loved, and it's you." Right. Uh, but it was Sansa that she was threatening. Right. And we had just seen a scene of him kissing her and saying that. She's now the only person he ever loved. <laughs> right. No, I do think that you have to... I guess it hinges on whether you think Baelish has any potential weaknesses. Sure. And whether one yeah, of those yeah. potential weaknesses might be Sansa. His love for Cat uh, Stark, who has now seemed to transfer into the younger version of that. Yeah. Um, I don't have a problem with buying that. Because he's just never had, I mean, caring about power and, you know, building the abstract, you can be cautious and stuff. But when you're talking about the life, you know, would he do something similar for Cat? I think unquestionably he would. So yeah. he's doing it for Sansa. Um, Dave in New Orleans said, what the fuck took that pardon so long to make its way to Jorah? He said he wasn't a forgery and it was signed by King Robert, so did he get lost in the mail? Uh, what the fuck? Let, I'm going to cut this email short. Jim, okay. what's your take on this? Because there's a, there is an answer. My take is just exactly what Jorah said. Tywin's trying to fuck with him. Tywin exactly. had the pardon. He knew that it would probably end his spy's reign if he ever sent it. So he waited until he needed to. He's been sitting on that in the royal archives. He said last episode to Varish, uh, do you think that your little birds can get to Essos? Mm-hmm. And a little bird in the shape of a slave boy, put this into Barristan's hand, and the rest is history. So, no, it didn't take the slow boat to Essos. No. It took the swift raven uh, over there <laughs> at the hand of Tywin Lannister. So that's the answer for that. Paul from North Carolina said, Jim seemed confused about why Danny was so upset that Jorah told the king about her baby uh, and why that was... Wait, wait, wait. I didn't just seem confused. I was confused. <laughs> He's being kind, Jim. Okay. You don't have to be. I can take it. You ignorant slut, Jim. <laughs> uh, 
uh, anyway, and why the blah, blah, blah. Aaron explained pretty well why this is important to Bobby B. What Aaron didn't address is why this is so important to Danny. My theory is that she thinks Jorah's intel about the baby is what led to the witch Miri Mazdur to kill Rago and Drogo in a two-for-one batch of blood magic. On the surface, Miri was pissed because Cal slaughtered her people, a totally valid reason. But after such a traumatic event, I think Danny was looking for a deeper reason. In her mind, and having been told as much by Viserys her whole life, she was always being pursued by the usurper's dogs and spies. I think she believes Miri was an agent of the crown, and that Jorah's info about the baby informed the witch and directly led to the baby's death. This explains why it's the most damning part of Jorah's betrayal and the linchpin in his exile. Uh... That is, I would consider that interesting headcanon. I don't think there's direct evidence that we have to confirm that theory. Hmm. Okay. But there's also nothing to dispel it either. So, um, mildly interesting, I guess. All right. All right. <laughs> An unironic use of mildly interesting. Uh, Paris Santi said, does this episode not have the tone of, oh, wow. Speaking of screwball teen comedies. Did this episode not have the tone of a screwball teen comedy? First, Egret absurdly shushes a baby. Danny had a deadpan delivery of the cock and balls euphemism. Grey Worm is doing his best Porky's imitation to Miss Sandy. The varsity bro hug and talk down to by Ramsey to Theon. Tyrion cracking the retard, the R word. Sorry to use that word, jokes. Baelish making puns. Sansa charming the eerie faculty. Arya breaking the fourth wall and the grotesque three o'clock fight at the flagpole between the mountain and the red viper. The trial by combat was then the tongue and cheek uh, was where the tongue and cheek joking stopped and the viewers reminded the brutal serious of the show. <laughs> I didn't get any of this, to be honest. Uh, Did you get I mean, some of it was funny. Sure, and I mean yeah, maybe there are some parallels kind of um in that a lot of Films and television are structured the same way, regardless of genre. Uh, but, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't pick up any of that during the show, no. Right on. Uh, that's all for the non-spoiler emails. We got a lot of spoilers to talk about after the break, including the next installment of our tinfoil theory. Okay. Uh, part two of an existing theory. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say, Jim? No. No, I think that's about it. All right. Well, if you'd like to continue our avalanche of email and contribute to it, you can do so at GameOfThrones at BaldMove.com. You can also get into our weekly show read or show threads on Facebook.com slash BaldMove. Please, please, no book spoilers. And you can also tweet at Jim. Again, no book spoilers on Twitter <laughs> at BaldMove. Uh-huh. Uh, please check out our Hodors of Hodomir if you're so inclined. And uh, until then, uh, we'll check back with you next week on Sunday night with the instant cast and a full cast a week from today. Until next time, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. And I will see you all in the spoiler section, or I'll see you book readers in the spoiler section. Watch it all come around as I lay on the ground. Joffrey, Cersei, Hill and Pain and Hound. They all think I'm lost, but I know where I'm found. I'm the blood in the north when it all comes down. My word is my bond, and my bond is my word. Valar to Harris, all men must serve. See as a raven flies, and time slips by. Valar, my rulers, all men must all right, we're safe in the spoiler section. Uh, Want to have a quick couple of comments that uh, I thought were some. Uh, I, I called out a few during the podcast uh, that were non-spoilery. Some shout-outs to book readers, and also some foreshadowing that is a little spoilery. 
I thought it was very funny about Littlefinger when he was talking to Robin about all the myriad ways that people can die without leaving their home. He mentioned ones like, you know, people die squatting over their chamber pots. A little bit of Tywin foreshadowing there. I also thought it was very funny Oberyn uh, kind of taunting Tyrion with his scolding about when wearing armor and helmets and drinking wine. He says, oh, did you learn this in your experience in the fighting pits? Of course, this is a, a little bit of foreshadowing for some of uh, the situations he finds himself in uh, Dance of Dragons. So I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, I also wanted to talk a little bit more about the situation with the Unsullied. Stacey L. called us out on Instant Cash. She said, do you guys really think that if you suddenly lost the old pillar and stones that you'd no longer have a single flicker of desire for love, that you wouldn't still long after the image of a beautiful woman? The removal of set appendages would not negate the purely human need for love and affection. Aaron, you especially should know this as there's a passage in the books that addresses this. I believe it is in dance, though I'm not positive, and this is not a plot point, so it shouldn't be a spoiler. Point of fact, damn near everything can be considered by a spoiler by some people. So, like I alluded to in the podcast, there are things I wouldn't even consider a spoiler a season ago. Like, a lot of people wanted me in the podcast to go into more detail about the formation of the Unsullied and some of their practices, like the fact that they had to go take a few pieces of silver, I believe, go into the slave town and slay a babe right in front of its mother and then pay the owner the silver pieces for the loss of the slave. Not the mother, but the but the the, the master. And... Uh, a couple other things, for example, some details of exactly what, you know, the, the potion they drank that dulled their senses and some more of their training details. And I replied that I didn't think it was that germane. It wasn't that interesting. Uh, and if they left it out, I wasn't that, you know, wasn't a big deal. But I could have just as easily said, sure, I'll go into some background and we could talk about how the fact that the Unsullied are cut, in fact, root and a stem stone and pillar and in fact this process is very fatal for all the reasons that the nurse in the main podcast talked about the fact that you can get severe infection the fact that it can heal improperly and impact uh, the body's ability to eliminate urine the fact that you can have closures and strictures and all those things this indeed is what happens to the unsullied but the masters don't care in fact they see it as a bonus that they weed out any boys that have an unsuitable genetic dispositions towards fast healing and uh, hardy constitutions. In fact, they don't understand why anyone would worry about death of slaves being a byproduct. I mean, yes, it makes the insulted a little bit more expensive, but the insulted are already a luxury class slave soldier. So they didn't have a big problem with the fact that, you know, cutting off their penis and their balls is dangerous. So the thing is, is that could somewhat be considered a spoiler at this point because there is setting up of this will they, won't they, unbelievably, between Grey Worm and Melis and uh, not Melisandre, uh, Grey Worm and Missandei. Now, uh, continuing on with Stacy's point before I <laughs> address it without reading it, uh, she said. It talks about a member of the Unsullied who frequents the brothels and marine and pays the women simply to hold him. 
That passage broke my heart. The masters may have believed that removing the old sausage and meatballs would turn them into mindless killing machines, but everything we know about biology and humanity tells us this wouldn't be so. I believe Martin did give us a glimpse into this, and the show is simply expounding on it, and I think they're doing a beautiful job. I agree, Stacy. Um, in fact, I would say that they're only doing this will-they-won't-they they to make us think that Grey Worm wants one thing or leave us in suspense about what kind of equipment he has. I think that they're going to show that that when they finally get together, which I assume they will, or why would they be doing this, that Grey Worm does simply want to be held. And he wants to lie in the presence of a woman and feel loved and accepted and that closeness. And he's going to be completely incapable of performing sexually. And that might be some interesting dramatic things uh, things for Miss Sandy to deal with because what does she want out of that relationship? It's not exactly strictly platonic, but also I would imagine she's a woman of physical needs as well. And some of those are not going to be met by Grey Worm. On the other hand, maybe if you rule out penetrative sex, there's various other ways a man could please a woman. That would be pretty complex and pretty interesting. I'm going to be, but the reason I say that this could be considered spoilers is if you talk about, you know, the cock and ball being completely gone and take out the suspense, then, you know, people that are purely show watchers might be clued into where this is going. And also, I'm not ruling out the possibility that maybe they are going to go down some of these other things they talked about in the main cast, where maybe Grey Worm still does have a pink worm that he is going to be somewhat functional with, or they're going to play coy about that. Doesn't seem like it's the show style, but who the hell knows? And that's why I kind of shied away from it and, and considering a spoiler, I will be super pissed if it turns out he's like fully functional and not impaired at all. And this is going to be a standard man loves a woman story that will seem to be, like I said, I, I'm not even going to get worked up about it because I can't see the double D's doing that. So that's my thoughts on that. David J says, I don't remember them foreshadowing the story of how Oberon got his name. So how do you think it was actually... Or do you think it was actually tipping their hand to the blades being poisoned when the boy wiped the spear down before handing it to him? Oh, hell yes, that was tipping their hands and foreshadowing. They've already talked about Prince Oberon being a master of poisons and the fact that he studied for uh, some time at the Citadel trying to become a maester before he got bored with it. Uh, he's acknowledged himself as a master of uh, poisons. Tywin has. Uh, that is definitely something that's going to be shown probably in the previously on those snippets of dialogue, you know, in the books he's, he is accused or he's called the red Viper because at the age of 16, he was caught in bed, uh, the bed of, uh, a nobleman's paramour. I don't believe it was his wife. Maybe it was his intended. Anyway, he gets called out, uh, trial by combat and is the the competition was for the first blood and they both actually bloodied each other uh but the next day the uh, the the person he was fighting uh the their wounds started festering and they ended up dying a painful death and a lot of people speculated that's because he used a poison tip blade and that's how he got the name the red viper so what David here is alluding to is the fact that we see this young boy who is attending to Oberon's weapons and he very conspicuously is rubbing this blade down with a cloth before handing it, handing it to Oberon to then goes about doing his Darth Maul routine. 
we know in the books that the mountain did in fact not die and that he's going to die if he dies at all, a very slow, painful death of uh, infected wounds. And it's speculated that this is because the Viper fought with a poison tip blade. So he gets his revenge kind of from beyond the grave, maybe in more ways than one. And depending on how many weeks we got left to go, uh, I think we might get into one of the other um, tinfoil theories regarding the Viper and Tywin. I think we've touched on it in another one, and I can't remember if we, we cited all the evidence, but uh, I'll have to go back and review that and see. Anyway, that's all the spoiler emails we have. Uh, we are going to do a little bit more of the Grand Northern Conspiracy. In the off, a lot of people asked me to do one of these segments in the off week, and I started to, but I quickly realized that this thing has almost bit off more than I could chew. I thought that these segments, when I first originally read them months ago, I thought that they were roughly the same length and had about the same amount of material, but oh my God, it would take me five, six, seven more segments to completely and accurately transcribe the width and breadth of the Grand Northern Conspiracy and all the supporting detail. And the thing is, a lot of the stuff is, the supporting detail is the crucial thing because it's all very circumstantial evidence. He postulates this elaborate telephone game that happens between the Northern Lords and the Northern Ladies and being in communication with the river run, uh, or the Riverlands and even the Vale and how the Blackfish is running this way and Manderley is getting information from a mute Ironborn, and it's very complex, and when you're reading, it's mesmerizing, it's very compelling, and it's uh, very credible. But almost every other tinfoil theory, I've been able to take ten words and say one and kind of cut this stuff down, but I was just at a loss of, of how I could take all these tenuous threads and express them on the podcast without basically spoon-feeding you that information. So I don't think I can do it. Uh, all I can do is go over a couple of the other solid pieces of the Grand Northern Conspiracy and encourage you to Google it if you'd like to read more and find out more for yourself. You know, the Grand Northern Conspiracy is one of the things I really count on when I hear people say, you know, gee, Aaron, is this book have any hope at all? Is there ever going to be a happy ending uh, or an ending that we can stomach is good going to triumph are the small folk going to have justice etc etc and honestly you know dance with dragons ends on a bummer of a note john snow apparently murdered by his own brothers uh the problem now is that george martin's got me conditioned to think well that's just that's going to be temporary there's no fucking way that that lasts um anyway i digress last week we talked about how uh, the North hasn't remembered, hasn't forgotten the Starks. The points that per, that Rob legitimized his brother, half brother John, uh, as uh, the heir of Winterfell, and how who knew this information, including characters such as Lady Stoneheart. What would be the barriers between uh, John taking up, you know, forsaking the Black quote unquote, and taking up his mantle as heir to Winterfell and King of the North? Uh, how this information would get to John and uh, how Lady Stoneheart would react and how Lady Stoneheart was using her agents as his Tom O'Sevens in River Run to combat uh, the Lannisters and the Frey Alliance and to free the various hostages that were taken during the Red Wedding to secure the loyalty of the Northern Lords and an overarching 
jailbreak plan that would remove that hostage situation so that they could act. This week, we're going to talk mostly about the Blackfish, where he's at, where what he's been up to, some speculation there, and also going to talk about uh, Wyman Manderley and uh, how much strength the North actually has to resist the Lannister slash Bolton slash Frey alliance up there. So let's talk about the Blackfish first. The last we saw, the Blackfish had uh, in 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 the time that Jamie gave an Edmure to surrender River Run, he had had the portcullis that was guarding the river that was submerged raised a foot or two, and the Blackfish do, did what Blackfish do, which is jump in the river, swim underneath that, and disappear into the night, and no one knows where he's at. A couple of things that I want to draw attention to is the last conversation that we see Blackfish having with anyone, and this was with Jamie, when Jamie rode up and was treating with him to surrender uh, River Run. Blackfish said, will I be paraded through the King's Landing like Eddard Stark? Jamie says, I will permit you to take the Black. Ned Ned Stark's bastard is the Lord Commander on the wall. Blackfish narrowed his eyes, said, did your father arrange for that as well? Catelyn never trusted the boy, as I recall, no more than she ever trusted Theon Greyjoy, who would seem that she was right about them both. Now, the, the theory is that the Blackfish has heard rumor of Rob's intent to name John as his heir. Uh, we know the River Run at this point still is defiantly flying a stark banner from their highest tower, but if we know that Jane Westerling has no child and that's certainly the subtext of the text and the show I believe has made that explicit. Rob does not seem in the show universe to have a legitimate heir. So how in the hell could he have one in the book universe? So I'm going to take that as gospel as well. Who are they actually flying that flag for a dead man? That doesn't seem right. Uh, However, we do know that a man that's currently being held hostage outside of River Run, Edmure Tully, Cat Stark's brother, and now heir to River Run, he is one of the lords that Rob had bear witness to him affixing his royal seal on naming his heir, which we believe to be Jon Snow. One of the things Jamie does is release Edmure to go inside. River Run and negotiate the release or the the surrender of River Run, which he does. Now, what if Edmure told the Blackfish that, yeah, in fact, Rob, as one of his last acts, did nominate John to be our heir and our uh, our king? Why would he? Why would he speak so ill of John Stark? Or, I'm sorry, John Snow. I've already put the cart. Bef- I put the Stark before the horse. Why would he speak so ill of him and, and kind of class him with Theon Greyjoy? Well, proponents of the Grand Northern Conspiracy say that the answer is simple. He was basically trying to put Jamie off the trail of this threat to Lannister power. And it makes sense because the Blackfish was one of Rob's closest advisors. He surely would know that Rob thought highly of Rob, uh, John, even if Catelyn did not. Uh, and he was basically trying to misdirect and mislead a lot of people that uh, agree with the Grand Northern Conspiracy say that this is really the only time that the Blackfish ever really engaged with Jamie during this argument. The most of the time he's just mocking him or being dismissive of him 
Uh, but he mentions Ned Stark's bastard and suddenly, oh, he, you know, sits up and actually addresses that thing uh, in a way that would make Jamie think that there's no threat there. Uh, so a lot of people say, well, that's classic misdirection. So if the theory is that Edmure knew that Rob had legitimized John, he goes into River Run, he tells his uncle, look, uh, this is this is what's happened, and this is the situation with John. Then it makes sense for the Blackfish to swim out from River Run, and a lot of people speculate that he has hooked up with his niece, the undead Catelyn Stark, Lady Stoneheart, uh, and again ascertain the fact that they're all in this Grand Northern conspiracy, and they're all trying to restore a Stark to Winterfell and to make him king of the north and uh, he is working to make that happen. Now, one of the popular theories is that Lady Stoneheart is going to charge him with going back to the Vale and raising all the banners there to uh, Jon Snow's side as well. And that's actually a strong possibility because we know the Lord's Declarant in the Vale that have been agitating against Littlefinger, uh you know, Jon Royce we saw in this episode uh, lots of others. Uh, they were in favor of ending the war of the five kings on the side of the Starks and the Tullys, and this was after the Red Wedding, even. Also, they have no love for the Boltons either. Um, if you recall in the Roos's Loose theory, the Roos Bolton is a vampire, we talked about his son, uh, Domeric. He was actually fostered in the Vale, just like Ed and just like Robert Baratheon were. And he, if you recall that discussion, Domeric was actually a pretty stand-up guy. He's well-learned, uh, nice to look at, uh, well-mannered, uh, high-born, good at riding a horse, showed promise as attorney knight. So you can see that they probably had a soft spot for this guy. Ramsey Bolton murdered him, and uh, they might still be sore about this. And also the fact that uh, they are obviously big fans of the Starks and everybody by this time. In fact, it's something that they talk about in the uh, small council meetings with Cersei leading them. Master Kyburn has been appointed as the master of whispers at this point, And he's warning them. He's like, look, the small folk are whispering about the Royal complicity in the red wedding. If the small folk know this, then I'm sure almost everybody in Westeros that's important would, and you can see that something like that would enrage the Lords of the Vale, and they would be, you know, Blackfish Tully, who is one of once the Knight of the Gates, which is a highly prestigious position amongst the, the Vale. Uh, you can see him returning and basically saying, hey, Rob Stark made John uh, legitimate. He named him heir as the King of the North. You guys were wanting to go to war after the Red Wedding just because it was so awful. Well, let us uh, combine our arms and uh, do some things that need to be done. We know that the Brotherhood without banners can probably take some of the uh, caravans that are taking hostages from the twins and from uh, the Bolton, from the Freys and the Boltons. Uh, they can take them back to King's Landing, and they're fairly lightly guarded. They could probably attack them. But Edmure needs to be rescued, and Jamie bolstered his guard to be like some 400 men before he dispatched them off to Casterly Rock. Lords of the Vale joined their strength to the Blackfish and to the Brotherhood Without Banners. That's something they could probably uh, accomplish easily. Lots of other interesting things going on in Riverlands that the Grand Northern Conspiracy 
uh, fixates on. There's one other I want to talk about that I thought was particularly interesting before we move on to the Manderleys. And there's a passage in A Feast for Crows where after the Jamie's uncle, Afray, takes control of Riverrun, it says, The Tully garrison departed next morning, stripped of all their arms and armor. Each man is allowed three days' food and clothing on his back after he swore a solemn oath never take up arms against Lord Emmon Frey or House Lannister. If you're fortunate, one man in ten may keep that vow, Lady Guinness said. Two men did not choose to depart with the others. Sir Desmond Grell, Lord Hulster's old master-at-arms, preferred to take the black. So did Sir Robin Ryger, Riverrun's captain of guards. This castle's been my home for forty years, said Grell. You say I'm free to go, but go where? I'm too old and too stout to make a hedge knight, but men are always welcome at the wall. As you wish, said Jamie, though it was a bloody nuisance. He allowed him to keep their arms and armor and assigned a dozen of Gregor Clegane's men to escort the two of them to Maidenpool. So, the Grand North Conspiracy speculates that they made it to Maidenpool, and they took a ship to Eastwatch, where the theory goes... They've been charged by the Blackfish with serving John notice that he's been crowned by Rob while Sir Brendan fights to secure the kingdom for him. So basically these are two trusted Tully retainers that are sent with a mission uh, to take the Black and go and make contact with John and explain everything that's going on. One of the important facets of the Grand Northern Conspiracy is literally John is the last to know that the conspiracy is happening. And how he will take the conspiracy is an interesting reaction. I've gotten a lot of feedback that I'm kind of saving in a little section of my notes to read uh, maybe next week after I've finished, because I don't think I'm going to continue with the Grand North Conspiracy past this week. Uh, some common objections about, you know, why John would or would not accept the uh, his role as heir of Winterfell or heir to the King of the North, uh, especially in conjunction with the R plus L equals J theory. Anyway, uh, I also want to say the one the one detail that got me interested in the Grand Northern Conspiracy in the first place, and it was in the very last section of the Grand Northern Conspiracy, Section 7, where he talks about the various hints that George Martin has put in his text about some of the other tinfoil conspiracies. And basically, he's trying to defend the tenuous threads that he's weave, woven, especially amongst the Northern Lords. Because we know Mance, or we know that uh, Lord Manderley is up to something. Uh, at one point, he boasts, or rather, uh, Davos Seaworth goes to White Harbor, and he sees at one point that Man Lord Manderley has built at least 23 war galleys. And later on, he has a conversation with him uh, in Dance of Dragons, Davos, Chapter 4. Said, Wyman Manderley lurched ponderously to his feet. I've been building warships for more than a year. Some you saw, but there are many more hidden up in the white knife. Even with the losses I have suffered, I still command more heavy horse than any other North Lord of the Neck. My walls are strong. My vaults are full of silver. Old Castle and Widow's Watch will take their lead from me. My bannermen include a dozen petty lords and a hundred landed knights. Clearly... Lord Manderley is spoiling for a fight. We also know that, you know, as far as foot soldiers, the Hill Tribes uh, are very staunchly pro-Stark. In fact, they'd rather die bathed in Bolton blood than die from the depredations of winter. So they're going to be on their side. The question is, can Manderley unite the rest of the North? 
And if you're familiar with the books, and God, I hope you are if you're listening to this, but you know that eventually everything kind of goes to Winterfell, where the Boltons have staged a mock marriage to a mock Arya Stark. Uh, she's a imposter that Ramsay Bolton is going to marry to then solidify the Boltons' hold on the North and to get their grimy little paws uh, their grimy little flayed hands on Winterfell. Lots of interesting things that happens at Winterfell. Uh, Lord Manderley shows up. He's got some pies he's baked. He's provided food and entertainment. Uh, it's strongly hinted at the text that these phrase that he smiled and put up with that we talked in the last section, that he murdered them as soon as they left his home and he gave them departing gifts, guest gifts which is a way of washing his hands of their guest rights. Uh, he has them hunted down and murdered, and then he bakes them in this pie. And during the wedding feast, he's literally serving the Freys and Boltons pieces of these Freys that he's cooked in the pie. And he's gulping them down himself and tasting, telling, saying how good it tastes. And he also has the singers sing uh, a bunch of stuff that's subtly mocking his host to their face, like he has them sing a song about the rat cook. Uh, rat cook is uh, famously about the... Uh, the black brother uh, that slayed some uh, some of his brothers and uh, baked them into pies that uh, he then served. And also um, another story about someone who forsaked the guest rights and from someone who's forever cursed. So there is some hints that he is being you know insolent towards the Freys and the Boltons. But there's also a lot of things that we see through Theon's eyes of lords, northern lords kind of talking with one another, uh, and conspiring with one another. And this passage was the one that, when I first read it, this is the reason I started doing the tinfoil theory, because I thought it was so awesome, and it's the reason I thought the Grand Northern Conspiracy was so awesome. Because this guy's saying, I've got all the circumstantial evidence. Are there any points in the book where George Martin has actually left clues that the Grand North Conspiracy is real, that these lords are actually conspiring together? There's a passage called Theon Turncloak, or Theon Five, the Turncloak in A Dance of Dragons, said more snowmen had risen in the yard by the time Theon Greyjoy made his way back. Winter has finally came, y'all. It is snowing to beat the band at Winterfell, and the men are building snowmen. To command the snowy sentinels on the walls, the squires had erected a dozen snowy lords. One was plainly meant to be Lord Manderley, who was the fattest snowman that Theon had ever seen. The one-armed lord could only be Harwood Stout, the Lady Barbary Dustin, and the one closest to the door with a beard made of icicles had to be the old Horsebane Umber. Now, in the previous segments, the guy who has architected this Grand Northern Conspiracy, which his name is uh, on Reddit is Yeed, Y-E-A-D-E. And again, if you want more information on this, you should search for Grand North Conspiracy on Google. Very first result is a Reddit thread that links all four, uh, seven parts of it. But if you recall that Lord Manderley's daughter, when she was talking about how fierce their loyalty, the Manderley's loyalty to Starks, and how disappointed she was with her father throwing in with the Freys and Boltons, fiercely said that we have for hundreds of years since the Starks took us in and set us up in White Harbor and sheltered us when our enemies hounded us, we've been Stark men. Uh, also re recall uh, the youngest... Uh, I believe it was the Umber girl, maybe it was a Karstark, uh, when she rejected Stannis's 
letter uh, that he sent by Raven to demand her fealty said that, no, we are, we have and always have been Stark men. This could be uh, a clever nod by Martin to say that these four lords, which are the four northern lords that have been conspiring at Winterfell, are now all snowmen, as in they're supporting Jon Snow. And there's something so satisfying and so clever about that. And the fact that Lord Manderley has the means, he has the men, he has the horses, he has the warships, uh, he has the authority to s- unite the other northern lords. He could possibly have Lady Stoneheart and the brand of brothers or the Brotherhood Without Banners fighting guerrilla wars for him in the w- Riverlands. They could be reuniting the Vale, uh, all under one strong leadership around Jon Snow. Because otherwise, the North is kind of fucked. They've got no harvest. Uh, everything has been consumed and eaten by the war, uh, including their crops and their food and their people. Uh, there are pockets of resistance here and there, but unless something centrally unites them, you know, is is Rickon if they get if they get Rickon from Skagos or from the uh, the Umbers in the show, is he going to be the Stark that unites people, or is it going to be a Stark that has legitimate? military experience and commanding troops and the respect of the Northern Lords. Uh, someone like Jon Snow, a man full grown who is Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Again, that's a problem. And we'll probably be talking next week on the feedback section about various ways that he could get out of that. Um, first and foremost, if he's dead and he dies, the Night's Watch is until death. So if he's resurrected by either uh, one popular theory is he gets warged into John or to uh, Ghost, and then uh, Melisandre resurrects his body as a white, or you know botches a resurrection job, or even if the resurrection job's not botched, we know from the experience of Beric Dondarrion that you come back each time you lose a little bit of yourself. Well, if John's able to warg his entire conscious into Ghost and then warg back into his resurrected body, that kind of neatly circumvents all that and it's a legal loophole that allow him to say that he did serve as vows until death he was dead he's come back and now he's resurrected as something more maybe as the Z- azor ahai uh, the prince that was promised uh, certainly uh, he could if he wished take up winterfell ah, like i said i was about to go into what if the night's watch is destroyed because that's another kind of tinfoil conspiracy that the night's watch is actually going to be destroyed in the winds of winter and the seeds of those destruction already planted in dance of dragons, but that'll have to be tinfoil for another time. Thanks for listening to me. I apologize if this was a little rambly. It was very, very hard to do this topic justice in a podcast format. If you like what you are hearing, but you want to hear more and you want to hear a better explanation. Again, I implore you to Google the Grand North Conspiracy. Interesting, a lot of people seem to have gone ahead and done that on my advice last time, and I got a lot of quality feedback. Hopefully we'll get to that next week. Uh, we will see you Sunday night for the Instant Cast, and Tuesday, please join us for the full coverage, and uh, not sure what Tinfoil Conspiracy will consider, but we'll have one. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us, and we will see you next week. <laughs>